representing 2 to 7% of the Pentagon's annual budget, and with a projected lifetime cost of over $1 trillion, the Joint Strike Fighter Program, with its three variations of the F-35 airframe for the U.S. Air Force, Navy, and Marines in over a dozen partner countries, is the most expensive weapon system in history. For point of contrast, World War II cost the United States an inflation-adjusted $4 trillion and was finished in four years, less time than the initial phases of development for the Joint Strike Fighter, which has taken over 20 years. Critics of the program are numerous, but when faced with the choice of scrapping the program and potentially having to spend even more money versus attempting to fix what is already existing, the United States government has decided to stay the course. Tonight, we are joined by a former Lockheed employee and F-35 representative to discuss why the program has run into so many problems, what could have been done better, and how this fits into the overall warfighting capability of the United States and its allies. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time dealing. The bully has the most successful. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Matt. He's a former Lockheed employee. We're going to be talking about the F-35 program. But before we jump into that, uh, I have a Bitcoin donation I'd like to thank real quick uh, from the wallet, starting with the characters 1NDY. And then let me introduce my co-hosts, uh, Nick. Hello. Hank. Good evening. And Hans. Good evening. And Matt, thanks for coming on. No, oh, thank you for having me. So where to begin? This is the most expensive weapons system in history. Very difficult to uh, to get started, but in my research of this, um, it's kind of interesting to note that this was developed, the program for the uh, Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35, made by Lockheed Martin uh, today, was uh, developed after the Gulf War. Uh, and apparently stealth was the kind of primary advantage that was uh, sought after after the F-117 made its debut in combat and was flying over Baghdad during the night and all those very famous images of anti-aircraft fire going off into the sky through night vision, uh, obviously. Uh, and you could see basically just this giant cluster of, of neon uh, tracers going up in the sky, not knowing where anything was, basically because they were unable to lock into the F-117s that were dropping bombs onto key targets in the capital of Iraq. And that was uh, decided to be a, a great, great uh, piece of technology, and they wanted to seem to roll that out. And they were actually unwilling, apparently, to fly F-16s uh, over Baghdad uh, during the day uh, because they were worried that uh, surface-to-air missiles would hit them. And F-16 is is a traditional, agile-designed uh, fighter jet that 
I believe it was made by General Dynamics, but its main purpose was dogfighting and air-to-air combat, uh, as opposed to the F-15, which is more suitable for air-to-ground attacks, uh, carrying a bunch of bombs, basically. Uh, but the F-16 was was super maneuverable, but it, it had basically the radar signature of a of like a house. And so it's very easy to pick up on, uh, and with the advances in some of the Russian surface-to-air missiles, uh, the Pentagon wanted to put stealth on its fighter jets, which the F-117 technically, and I've argued this multiple times in the show, is not because it cannot do any dogfighting. It basically just can carry a couple bombs and that's it. Um, so that's kind of the yeah. backdrop to this whole program and it slowly kind of got rolling in the 90s. Um, but Matt, you tell us, uh, you were actually at the Fort Worth plant in Texas where they make these things. Um, so what do you know about why this thing got started and... And what do you have to say about it? Well, the first thing I would, I'd have to go back to the late 1960s during the Vietnam War, uh, where you had the, basically the F-4 Phantom, which was basically the precursor to the F-35 is what we were pretty much instilled with. You had a, basically, they would always say like, if you have a big enough engine on anything, you can make it fly. And that was basically the F-4 Phantom. And during that time, McNamara was basically, you know, one of the Pentagon's whiz kids. He had come from, I think it was General Motors or Ford, one of the um, um, automotive manufacturers. It was Ford. And it was Ford. Okay. He came from there and he was basically just, you talked about Taylorism before. Basically that was McNamara. Like let's streamline absolutely everything we can. Let's streamline it, you know, and, you know, try to collect statistics on it and do everything we can to, you know, make the best fighter plane ever or whatever. And it was basically a scientific or mathematical approach to warfare. Um, so that was the F-4 Phantom. It was in the Air Force, the Marine Corps, and the Navy. Um, started out as a Navy plane, and the Air Force eventually adopted it. So that was really the, the precursor to it. Like, anything that you can do to get a big fleet out there, reduce the logistics cost, which is absolutely critical, you know, to any program like that so that was the f4 phantom um the f4 phantom uh obviously it there was a lot of air combat doctrine that had really slipped in the early 1960s right after korea and uh, they basically had a real dependence upon non-visual combat so they had really relied upon the f4 phantom you know, to take out targets beyond visual range. Um, and they really took a lot of casualties with that. Um, so, this is the intro screen of Top Gun. Right. Yeah, they yeah. mentioned, they mentioned mean, that they were not using uh, the guns. Uh, that was uh, Tom Skerritt's line. But they were using missiles instead. So you're saying that, right. that, was, that was deemed uh, insufficient or... What, what, what is your contention? 
my contention was, you know, the, the technology at the time was not capable at that time to do beyond visual range. I think it's called BVR, BVR yeah. uh, you know, combat. Um, and especially when you're in the jungles of Vietnam, there's a lot of heat coming off the jungles and that can really, you know, bamboozle, mm-hmm. you know, sensors. the, mm-hmm. your sensors. And at that time, I mean, that was even before, uh, the Apollo program when they first, you know, right. started, you know, operations over in Vietnam, you're talking about, you know, technology that is, less powerful than you know a, a ti calculator that you have today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um the f-35 program really you know you're talking about the gulf war and everything like that you know the f-16 is a uh, a great dogfighter one thing you have to keep in mind about the f-16 is it's got one single engine it's a like a lot of like the in, you know the MiG twenty one fish beds, uh, you know during the Vietnam War. It's very nimble. It's got a very. Um, I mean, that was really I think the first one of the first fly by wire uh, aircraft that was out there. So I mean, it's technically it's not flyable without that computer there. Right, right. As so, opposed to the older system where it was mechanical linkage, you know, you're using right. basically electronics to send instructions to the engines, the ailerons, all the different control surfaces on the airplane. So right, you need that yeah. computer and all the all the electronics to be functioning. Right, um, and you know the F F fifteen actually came before the F sixteen, and there's a lot of talk about the fighter mafia. Uh, the Pierce that came before that. Yes. Uh, I mean, he, he's got some good points and some bad points, but, uh, you know, I don't really know the history and the ins and outs of, of what happened before that. But, you know, with the F 15, you basically have, you have two engines. You have two F 115 engines where I think they're um, Pratt and Whitney F 115 engines on the F 15. You know, with the F-16, you have one of those. But the big advantage that the F-15 has, it's it's got a lot longer of a range and carry a whole lot more missiles. Um, and it can basically hang around a target longer. And it's got a lot of power. But where the F-16 comes into to play is with, you know, the maneuverability and plus the cost, too. You know, to fly an F-16 is a lot, you know, to operate an F-16 or fly one is a lot cheaper. It's a lot easier to fly one of those compared to an F-15. Do you know why it's cheaper? I mean, just look at it. I mean, really half the cost of of most of these fighter jets is in the engines. Mm. I mean, that's a big player right there. Okay. You know, because the engines, you know, it takes a lot of really skilled maintenance mm-hmm. or just manufacturing you know to build one of them it takes a you know you're talking about spewing you know hundreds of gallons of jet fuel into one of these suckers mm-hmm. um yeah just as a frame of to... reference uh big rig trucks carry about 300 gallons of diesel fuel i don't know exactly how many gallons 
fighter uh, jets are carrying. But if nobody's ever actually gotten up close to one of these things, they're not small. They're really big. They're really big vehicles. I mean, I would even say it's it's comparable to the size of a tractor uh, of a tractor trailer. They're they're probably bigger than that actually. Um, and most of it is basically just the engine, the wings to hold all the fuel, the tails. And then you have a little room left over for basically the actual weapons, but it's basically a, a weapons delivery platform and you got to go really far, really fast. And the faster you go, you're basically going up against turbulence and friction and it's, um, you're burning a lot more fuel the faster you go, just like in cars, I would assume. Yeah. And one thing, I mean, basically you've described it pretty well. I mean, it's basically a flying engine, you know, with some computers on board. Uh, if you look at the F-16, um, or let's just talk about, you know, the F-35. The F-35 carries, they always talk about pounds, you know, when you're talking about aircraft, you know, when the, the fuel consumption. I mean, that, that's everything to them is, it's not about, they don't talk about gallons, they talk about pounds. Um, but, you know, for, you know, reference, I'll, I'll talk about gallons right now. The F-35, I believe, carries... 1800 gallons of fuel and if they were completely what you would call naked i mean no weapons no external fuel tanks or anything like that i mean they can basically fly for about an hour and 15 minutes that's how much fuel you burn without the aerial refueling obviously but that without the yeah, that's only possible if you have you know air superiority, and so if you're going over a target like Russia, I mean you're screwed and you basically can't get in there. Um, so you have to. I mean Iraq, we just we killed everything, so it was easy to probably do that. But um, excuse me for cutting you off, but I just wanted to add that in because no, it's, no, no, no. it's, it's a huge point, you know, to decisions of where you can deploy these things. Yeah, I mean, uh, seventeen. I think it's like seventeen or eighteen hundred gallons, and that'll last you about a little over an hour. So, I mean, you're talking about huge fuel consumption, um, and I get those numbers from uh, the training aircraft that we had uh, set up. Mm-hmm. You know, initial training operations with mm-hmm. the aircraft. Yeah. So, is is that one of the bigger problems with the F thirty five? Is that the Fuel consumption is at a rate that makes it very difficult to use it in um, in certain combat with highly advanced nations. The way that it was sort of designed to be used for. No, no. that's all. That's all jet fighters. I mean, if anything, it's probably less than you know some of the legacy aircraft that you had before. I mean, that's all, Jeff jet aircraft fighters the, the problem I mean, with the f-35 is mainly the cost it's in the complexity it's not so much the plane is terrible per se I, I think they will get through it this is my bias coming out but just after watching the thing it seems to be getting better um we can get into the decisions of like why this thing is still going versus scrapping it and going with something else um but uh yeah just short summary it's just expensive it's mind-boggling exp- expensive um I think that's the main thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, for sure, it is expensive. But I would say the bigger problem with the F-35, and we can talk about this later in the podcast, mm-hmm. is it's the maintenance, you know, the, the amount of detail that you have to have with this particular aircraft yeah. is, 
it's it's just very detailed and just takes up a lot of resources. I mean, we can get into this later. Yeah, well, let's. Sure. Uh, you mentioned Vietnam, so let's talk about some of the background a little bit more before we go into the details. Um, so McNamara was the defense secretary of the United States during a chunk of the Vietnam War, and his his kind of fighter program, or it's not really a fighter, it's sort of a multi-role aircraft like the F-35, it was the F-111. And in most defense circles, that's considered a, a pretty gigantic failure. And a lot of the critics of F-35 will point to the F-111 and say, multi-role can't work, this is the proof, don't do it, you should have specialized airplanes and airframes for specialized tasks as opposed to what the F-35 was attempting to do which is be a a basically take a vertical takeoff or vertical um, landing vehicle for Marines uh, have extended range for the Navy and then have stealth and all these other things that the Air Force wanted and they're trying to shove it into one airplane and it was really the uh, the, the vertical landing capability I think that made the thing just really get difficult uh, but that's just my sh- you know short analysis but that was um, that was compared to the F-111. So I don't know if you have any commentary on the multi-role strategy, Matt, as opposed to a, a single or more focused role uh, for different fighter airplanes. Yeah, well, let's start on the F-111. Originally, I think it started out as a, a Navy aircraft. And uh, they had had a... I can't remember the, the plane that it, it basically, you know, succeeded with it... Um, or sur- sur- I replaced that. Um, I can't remember the name of that, that one. I think the F-4 but, basically you know, took over from most of the type of things the F-111 was doing, but I could be mistaken. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you have to think about, you know, with a carrier, you basically have X amount of carrier space. And keep in mind, I mean, these planes are definitely are very maintenance intensive. And... Like back then, they had multiple different wings and different aircraft on those aircraft carriers. And they literally, that was before the CVNs or the carrier variant nuclear came about. Uh, so you had multiple different aircraft and, you know, they all have their own, you know, supply chain behind them. I was mostly focused on the supply chain with the F-35, you know, which which basically I mean, if you don't have the supply chain, you don't fly. So, you know, the F-4 or the, the F-111, you know, it was just another aircraft that you had on, on board that plane. So the Air, or the Air Force and It's a big up, plane, right? I mean, it's got sw- swept wings oh, to try huge. to you know, sh- I mean, shrink it a little bit. But, I mean, these things, it, when they're fully extended, they come out, you know, almost horizontally. And then they kind of try to make it more... Uh, straight i guess uh when they pull them back for high speed but they're, they're big planes i mean they're kind of a, a fighter bomber not really a fighter it's really just kind of a, a small bomber and you're trying to yeah, put those on aircraft carriers that's insane it's definitely a, a small bomber um uh definitely um and keep in mind you know when uh you know with the f-111 too you know a lot of your modern day or even you know, World War II era aircraft had folding wings. You couldn't do that with the F-111. I mean, they, they came back. They 
Right. So what you're what you mean is the the wings on the carriers could tilt up. F one eleven could basically just right, swing yeah. forward and backwards. Yeah. That that's the difference. It swing all the way back. So I mean, definitely you had a big footprint on board. You know that that carrier. Plus, I mean, back then during the Vietnam War, they had like A sixes. They had um, A fours. Intruders. You know, F four. Yeah. I mean. I mean, I, I can get lost on these Century Series aircraft. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many of them that, you know, the footprint on board those carriers, and I've been on board these carriers before. I mean, it is teeny tiny, teeny tiny. So what you're getting uh, at is if you have multiple types of aircraft on the airplane, it's not just the planes that take up space. It's all the supply chain and the support equipment and the maintenance things that are basically... Absolutely not standardized and so if you have one plane you would basically have one set of tools for that plane as opposed to five sets of tools taking up five times as much as space for five different aircraft or whatever the number they had but i think that's kind of what you're getting at uh for the carrier yeah. constraints here you had one baggage train you know that's it um so yeah the f-111 eventually got took up by the the air force and uh I think you're also talking about uh, multi-role aircraft. Uh, people like Pierre Spray, and they talk about like, oh, multi-role aircraft, they just suck. Like everything about them sucks. Well, I will, dis- I will totally disagree with that. Because a lot of these smaller nations, especially some of these European nations, that's really all they can afford is, I mean, they can't afford to go out there and, develop or sustain Mm -hmm. you know like one particular type of aircraft like you have to have a multi-role platform and and one of the things that uh in researching this i I discovered i was looking through a lot of uh documents from different countries about you know what because like 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 you say i mean the smaller countries they really have to think hard about what programs they're going to invest in because unlike the pentagon that has almost a trillion dollars every year to blow on weapons platforms I mean, you take Canada, uh, for example, they're one-tenth the size in terms of population, and their defense budget is really not going into development of weapons. They're basically just buying finished aircraft, and so they have to decide what they're going to pick, and it's a struggle, and they, they pointed out that today, even if they wanted to, they wouldn't have the resources to develop a fifth-generation aircraft, which is what the F-35 is. Uh, it would just be too expensive. There's just too many technological hurdles they'd have to invest in. And, you know, the counterpoint to that is that Sweden has its own fighter program, but what the Canadians are saying or observing at least was that the, the, the Swedes basically built an airframe, but they didn't develop a lot of the technology on it. So they would basically, they called it a kit plane. They would just develop this thing uh, to fly, uh, and then they would outsource all the rest. So the missiles, the radar, whatever else that goes into this thing, uh, the engines, they would not design that. And uh, there is some of that, obviously, in Lockheed as well. They don't do the engines. It's Pratt & Whitney, I think, and F-35. The missiles, I'm sure, are done elsewhere. But they might do their own radar, or they, they have close supervision of that. Um, so it's just it's very difficult, especially these days, with uh, the kind of you have to kind of try to get ahead of the competitor and invest in all this technology. It just seems to get more and more expensive. Uh, there was a... 
couple of defense analysts calling uh, this trend the death spiral. The joke was by 2054, the United States will only be able to afford one airplane, and it would have to be shared in the morning between the Air Force, the afternoon with the Navy, uh, and then at like in the on the weekends or something that the marines would get it or something it was it was kind of a joke obviously but the the trend has been these things keep getting more expensive now maybe you can explain why but just to give a statistic on this i actually mentioned this in my little book uh but the uh, a4 aircraft um don't quiz me on when that came out but i I would estimate it's about 50 years ago cost about 10 million dollars per airplane adjusted for inflation uh and then you're looking at maybe a hundred million dollars uh, or more for the F-35, and the estimates vary like crazy. So you know we're talking about like total um, total program estimated flyaway costs, cost. flyaway costs. You know over time. I mean all these things are very nebulous and uncertain. But let's just pick you know hundred million for you know ease of argument. So it's about ten times as expensive. So do you know why that that's happened? Well, let's start with Canada. Uh, Canada. I mean, the United, let's start with the United States. The United States plans on buying over 2,035s. Guess what Canada is going to buy? It's 65 50? aircraft. 65, yeah, okay. So, like, if Canada was to go out there and just say, like, hey, we're going to create our own aircraft, we're going to invent it from scrap, and, you know, we have X amount of budget, I mean, you're going to have to spread that cost, all the research and development over 65 planes. I mean, it's just, you can't do it. I mean, that would be probably a billion dollars a plane. Um, It's just not going to happen. So they're definitely reliant upon the United States. And, you know, they've they've definitely uh, contributed with research and development of it, but I mean, at the end of the day, they're only buying 65 planes. So it really, I mean, it, it takes a nation like the United States, you know, that's going to buy a, a big lot to, when I say a lot, they, they that's an actual technical term, you know, a, a lot that they buy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You have to buy, you know, thousands of these planes to make it, cost efficient well that that's certainly true um you do have economies of scale you know when you have fixed cost development costs and then you can spread them out over multiple aircraft your per unit cost goes down obviously but the the question i'm trying to figure out and i don't really have an easy answer for it is why has the per unit cost gone up so much as opposed to back you know vietnam or whatever oh yeah well let's get back to the you know the 19 late 1950s throughout the 1960s uh those planes that they came out with were called the century series aircraft and there were there were dozens of them you had the f-100 you had the f-101 voodoo you had uh you know the a4 i mean i can just go you know plus a lot of other experimental planes that went through that but those century series aircraft during that time there was a lot of aeronautical knowledge that was gained during that time so they might produce let's say that i'm just throwing something out you know the f-101 voodoo and you know they built it and you know they you know this was during the cold war we need uh you know you know 500 of these aircraft or whatever so they would build them you know and 
you know, build them fast. They would have, um, you know, some test flight aircraft or whatever, and they would build them and build them fast. And then, you know, come to find out like, okay, Soviet radar is picking up on this aircraft or this thing isn't survivable anymore. So, I mean, they would quickly retire those aircraft. And a lot of them still had a lot of uh, flight time still on them. I mean, they, they could survive, you know, or they could keep on going for a long time. You still have, like, African nations flying that series well into the 90s, if I recall correctly. Probably. I mean, you still have a lot of third world nations that are still flying the A4, the F4. I mean, even Japan right now is still flying the F4. So, so I mean, would, would, is it fair to say it's quantity over quality? During that time, yes, because, I mean, this is before, you know, the time of computers and some of the, you know, CAD type of uh, manufacturing and, you know, development. Yes, I mean, they were producing them quickly and trying to field them as quickly as possible to, you know, combat, you know, the red menace, whether that's real or not. So it was, it was I mean, the Air Force back then and the Navy was... I mean, two or three times larger than it is today. Uh, like my grandfather, uh, you know, he grew up during the Depression. I think he was born in 1928. He, you know, basically had a bachelor's degree in like uh, elementary education. And he and the population of the United States was a lot lower back then, too. So the Air Force back at those those times, I mean, they were quickly, you know, take anybody that would be, you know, willing to, to fly. Yeah, I wonder if and, just the sense of urgency was stronger back then. I mean, the F-35 was developed in the 90s. The United States didn't have any real competitors, in, militarily speaking. And it still kind of doesn't. I mean, it's obviously, you know, contending with China much more than it was. But I think just the complacency problem may have explained some of why everybody got to raise their hand and give their opinion on what they could shove into this airframe and it may have just gotten out of hand and also i should add that because this is a multi-nation fighter program uh, i think that slowed down the development and increased the complexity more as well because you just have so many more delays so much bigger supply chain so many more people trying to complain or request features i i would add that the development costs are mainly due to the um the lack of a serious threat forcing quick decisions to be made or hard decisions to be made and also the the scale uh and and scope of the program itself which which is kind of unique so i'm just trying to answer my own question but um what i also wanted to say was the from the political angle the program is interesting to me because it, uh, if you look at some of the brochures or just, you know, do enough research, you'll notice this, the countries that have been selected to participate in the development and manufacturing of the jet, uh, are basically NATO countries and with the exception of Japan, uh, but they're basically U S empire military base allies. You know, they, they, we have U S bases or U S has bases in those countries. And, if you think of it in terms of like, this is how the United States empire works, whether giving favorable trade deals to 
uh, Japan or Germany after World War II to get them to come into the NATO fold, or again, Japan is the exception, but it's sort of in the Asian sphere against the uh, the red menace in China and Russia. Um, this is how the U.S. empire works. It basically gives economic access to the U.S. market in exchange for political allegiance. Uh, and to me, this is just the continuation of that strategy writ large with the biggest fighter program ever developed. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just, it's so obvious when you, you kind of look at it through that lens in my opinion, but, um, just wanted to add that in there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, definitely it was, I, I think all of the, I think it started out with the U S and Britain were, you know, the, the key, yes, you know, key yeah. people that started it. And, and Britain has on. particular technology that it was contributing uh, in their credit because of the Harrier program for the vertical lift uh, and landing capability for the, the Marine variant. Uh, the I think it's the uh, F-35B. Uh, that's yep. the Marine version. The Harrier was what the Marines were using, and that was a, a British program. And then it, I think it got purchased. I think it was um, Hawker Sidley, if I remember correctly. I don't remember exactly the name of the manufacturer there, but they basically were being made by McDonnell Douglas in the United States at least. And yeah. the initial technology that was developed in the UK. So they, they were the first program or country to sign onto the program. And then after that, I think it was like Norway, Italy, and a few others. France has their own program. I think, I actually don't know about Germany. Do you know what Germany's doing? Uh, are they buying these things or no? Uh, they're, the Luftwaffe is currently considering that. But at the same time, they have a lot invested with the uh, Eurofighter. Mm -hmm. You know, the UK, France, and Germany are big. Uh, and Italy too, our big uh, Eurofighter purchasers. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that you were touched on with the AV-8B, which is what they call the Harrier. Mm. Uh, yeah, the here's what I would kind of maybe disagree with you on that um, is the propulsion system for the F-35B, which is the Marine Corps variant, was developed by Lockheed. The AV-8B, which is, it, it's got like an indirect propulsion type of a system where it takes basically excess gases off of the, the turbine and directs it down. So the AV-8B has got a whole lot less propulsion than the F-35. Yeah, it's a very the small, nimble aircraft. It's not really designed to carry the the amount of fuel and, and weapons that I think the F-35 does so it can get away. It right. doesn't have stealth and so it can kind of make it aerodynamic and everything so it doesn't have to deal with all the problems that F-35 does, but please go ahead. Yeah, so like basically during the early 2000s, I think the program got started in like 99 or 2001. They had their fly off in 2001 where they basically yeah. made the decision to go with the F-30 Yeah, F -35 that, was, that was against program. Boeing. So Boeing and Lockheed were basically... Yeah. Both they had the Boeing had Phantom Works and Lockheed has Skunk Works. That's the famous yeah. development lab, and they yeah. were in Palmdale. I think they they stole from our name, Phantom Works. Of course, of course, terrible. <laughs> Good gosh, uh, but you know the Boeing aircraft basically went with the AVA AV8B type of propulsion, mm -hmm. where the F35B has got it directs downward its entire you know, butthole, if you will, <laughs> directs it down and it's got a huge amount of lift on that where, you know, the Harrier basically took indirect gases off of the main turbine mm 
and tried to go with the Harrier type of option. And during that fly-off, there's a great um, documentary called like Nova. Uh huh. It's on. I've Nova. seen it. I've seen. I taped it when I was, uh, in, you know, back in the day. Uh, and yeah. yeah. Uh huh. It's good. Yeah. So I mean, they had to take off a lot of the different panels just to get the weight exactly right. So they went with a AV8B Harrier option with that. And it was just, it was too dang heavy. And I don't know if you've ever seen like the Boeing JSS. They called it, was it terrible JSF looking. back then. I, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It looked like one of those big Worst scoops. Yeah. You took like water out yeah. and like dumped it on forest fires or whatever. Right. Like it was an ugly yeah. ass aircraft. It was terrible. Um, yeah. And it just, it didn't make it. You know, I don't know how but, fair that documentary was. It seems they were fairly balanced, but it it just seems like Boeing legitimately lost. I mean, they, they just had so many problems, like hydraulic leaks, or uh, they they would uh, they would just have these these stupid engineering problems. Like they were trying to they were trying to push the envelope because they'd never really gotten into the the fighter market like Lockheed. I mean, their last fighter was like in World War II, and so they're Boeing's a big commercial airliner uh, maker, and they actually used to fly airplanes. Believe it or not, that's where United Airlines comes from. And then there was an antitrust suit against them, so they they broke that off. But so their legacy is basically commercial aviation. And so going into the military, even though they did buy McDonnell Douglas in the '90s, it was just not it was not a military company per se. And so they're kind of doing this, you know, for the first time. And it showed and just their engineers were like fighting over the, like the dumbest shit. Like, Oh, we should have like a different tail. Like, or they, they tried to do like a Delta design, which is this really risky approach. And again, if you pull it off, that's great. But you know, you've never done this before. Like you really want to take chances on this sort of thing. And they had this, uh, this skin that they were going to put onto the, the wing made out of plastics. Uh, they're calling it thermoplastics and they were trying to layer 80 of these sheets together, cook them, in a vacuum because if you have it in air it'll burn up and then they just couldn't get it right and so they scrapped that uh, it was just problem after problem um and they they lost i mean they legit and they, their plane just looks stupid too i just i can't get you know i'm sorry i'm a very aesthetic person but just you cannot go into war with the plane looking like that uh f-35 unfortunately is not the best looking plane but it's better looking than the, the stupid thing Boeing was developing i'll give it that so yeah uh, one thing that they were doing too, they went with the Delta wing design to try to save cost. But so they scrapped they have... it. They see they they tried and then they they put a tail on it like normal uh, fighters at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Well, they just yeah. they just made a whole lot of changes during the whole time. Yeah. You know, they basically I mean, it lost them. And again, I mean, McDonnell Douglas, they acquired them, I guess probably in, probably the mid 90s. 95, I think. Maybe, yeah. maybe later. But something like so, that. I mean, McDonnell Douglas, I mean, that's legit. I mean, they built the F-15. So mm-hmm. there's a lot yeah. of, like, F-4 intellectual too. knowledge there. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk, you know, that, you know, maybe the United States government just decided to just award it to Lockheed or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But. I have a, uh, a contention. <laughs> Maybe for why this has so been so costly, <clears throat> and Matt can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm probably wrong, but I think a lot of the work that's gone into the F-35 has been very revolutionary. There's been a lot of the costs have been sort of um, uh, R and D costs that have been made part of the production cost. 
One of those, from what I've read before, would be that there's a, a revolutionary sensor and visual interface system that uh, that Lockheed really tried to pioneer for this. Um, for this the pilots plane. or for the plane yeah, itself? For the, for, the, for the pilots. For mm. the pilots and just the plane, basically. Plane also. Have. Yeah, this is, oh. the, this is the crazy, uh, like, rotating, basically like a fancy Star Trek helmet interop. Well, not just that. So there, one of these sensors is the ANAAQ-37 distributed aperture system. And actually, Northrop started making it. Uh, and they, they originally had the contract for this specific piece. But it uses uh, six electro-optical sensors that operate in mid-wave infrared spectrum to provide a 360-degree view around the plane in an attempt to maximize situational awareness. It also aided in missile and launch point detection and had plane is basically covered in cameras, uh, from what I understand. And those were part of this, what Hank is mentioning, which is this integrated, um, almost Iron Man-like uh, heads-up display that was developed by Israeli um, But, you know, this alone was a had never been really tackled before. Integrating all this technology, um, cameras, the sensors, the heads-up display, all the code, all the testing, all the QA work, it goes into just that specific process flow uh, i can see why you know the adam is saying that there's a price point difference so, you know, 10 to 1 basically 10 million to 100 million. Uh, I, I can see why that exists because when the warthog was being developed a lot of that uh, was long-standing knowledge there's a lot of long-standing technology they were using uh weapon systems that had already been developed it was really about putting a, a plane frame around a big gun that they already had and if it warthogs are not particularly complex they've been updated obviously with a lot of computer systems but yeah. uh, i think everything that went into the, the, the f-35 development program the sensor program alone probably boosted those costs on a price per point average and you have to remember that this is also a stealth plane and it was tr they were trying to develop a very specific type of new um, of new stealth coding specifically for the air force model that uh, i think had never been again never been attempted before and instead of uh, maybe and matt can correct me on this again uh instead of putting the r d first before attempting to fit this into the production model uh really has created this cost ballooning but there was a lot of r d that it is said to do in production and in testing of the aircraft that, uh, has just to, to clarify uh i want to make sure for the audience um so Hans is referring to the A-10. That's the Warthog. Uh, yeah. I was mentioning the A-4, which is sort of oh, a small attack sorry. aircraft. Uh, just wanted to distinguish. I think it's a Navy plane. Uh, the Warthog is basically this giant bomb carrier that is designed to basically take out tanks. But uh, it's it's a lumbering giant for close air support. Uh, but yeah, what you said is probably true about the complexity. Point, yeah, I, I know. I, I, know. I just wanted to make make sure that, is that a lot of this technology. Right. Okay, so the A four probably has a similar dynamic, and that a lot of that technology, a lot of those warfighters, were using um, methodologies, technology, and engineers who had already optimized a lot of this, a lot of these integrated solutions. Whereas again, with this F thirty five program, I think that there were a lot of new ideas that. Lockheed probably put on the table to get the contract. The U.S. government loved it and probably had a, I don't know, maybe kind of an oh shit moment and realized that they had to include all this, things they had never done before 
on this uh, new plane with an entirely new manufacturing process. And frankly, whenever you add software, like the the amount of the extent to which the F thirty five is software driven, as opposed to hardware driven, is absurd. And that's something that it's almost guaranteed to balloon costs. The track record for very large, uh, kind of uh, monolithic software products is is terrible. Like human organizations empirically can't deliver multi-million lines of code software projects on time and on budget. Like that just never happens. I have some numbers on that, but I want to let Matt jump in if he had something to respond. I'd like to hear from Matt. Oh, gosh. There's there's a lot to start with that. For one thing, too, I mean, this is one thing that every that should be clear to every everybody here on this podcast is this plane is trying to solve the needs of three different military branches and in dozens this or plane, probably a dozen countries well not only well those dozen countries do whatever the hell we give them i mean don't forget about that i mean it, it's really the air force the marines and the the navy you know that really drive those requirements and what is really unique, which is completely just blows my mind with this this program is, you know, this requirement to have vertical takeoff and landing capability. It's called VTOL. And where did that come from? It didn't come from the Navy. It didn't come from the Air Force. It came it, from the Marines. Is it VTOL the, or, or S-VTOL? Because I, I, from footage I've seen, they don't take off vertically. They, they have a short runway. Then they kind of use that lift assist to get off a very short runway. But They can take off vertically. Okay. They can okay. take off. I mean, I can't remember. I mean, it's been six years. I don't know if it's S, S-VTOL or whatever. I but, think, okay, so what I'm confusing is they have an S and then they have a slash. And so I think that what, what it means is that they can take off short, which is probably safer. Uh, but if they push comes to shove, they can do VTOL as well. So I think that's a well, slash designation. When, when you're on a, you know, an LVN type of carrier, uh, which is the Marines, it's, it's basically like a, a short, stubby uh you know, aircraft carrier. I mean, they have to use VTOL. Yeah, the, the WASP I mean, was the sort of uh, designated. Yes, I uh, was on the WASP. Okay. Yes, I was on the WASP. But what's crazy about this program was that the Marine Corps drove a lot of the requirements of this. And the They're Marine the Corps ones that got the stupid helmet, basically, requirements because the dumb engine is right behind the, the cockpit, so you can't see behind. That's what I heard, at least. That's one of the reasons the helmet is so complicated because you have to, when you look behind you, the stupid helmet takes over and like gives you like the virtual like footage of like what is behind the aircraft. Yes. I mean like the Marine Corps variant, the ABA or the, I keep saying the ABA, you know, the F-35B, it's got that big lift fan behind it. So yes, your visibility is really terrible, but it's what is really crazy about this program was, you know, the Marine Corps is getting like 500 of these aircraft. Um, you know, the Navy is getting, I think, I don't know, more than that, you know, twice as much, about 1,100. And, you know, you know, the rest of it goes to the aircraft or the Air Force. You know, how so they only get the heck, 700 vehicles or whatever it is? The Air Force? They're getting over, I think they're getting like 2,700 vehicles was, was the plan. I mean, it's coming down every day, you know, with the Are you cost talking about the, the Pentagon or are you talking about the Air Force now? 
The total well, or, or the Air Force? In total for the U.S. government, it's over 2,700 aircraft. Yeah, okay. But the, the smallest buyer of it is the Marine Corps. And yeah. they are the big driver right. of, you know, basically the total shape of that aircraft. Mm-hmm. That aircraft would look a whole lot more like the F-22 if it was just an aircraft or an Air Force. Well, you, you mentioned uh, the lift fan, and I just want to uh, add in to what you previously said about how it takes off vertically. The, the, the two thrust, main thrust vectors are from the aft engine nozzle where you know the, the forward thrust comes from. Uh, that's the typical design for a jet is it pushes out from the back and it pushes you forward. But what in, in addition to that, the F-35B has this lift fan, which is right behind the pilot. And that is actually driven purely mechanically by a drive shaft that comes from the turbine itself. And then it, it yep. just has like a, a gear that like, you know, rotates at 90 degrees and then it, it just blows air down and it has to come from an upper intake, obviously. But the control nozzles are basically just for the pilot to kind of like make sure it doesn't flip over or something, but they don't really lift it up. But it's those two main uh, thrust vectors that push it off the ground. And it's it's pretty innovative design, but it just, as you said, it just made it so bulky, uh, the aircraft, because you had to add that, that big fan, that second fan. It's like almost like a second turbine. It's not technically a turbine, but it's basically a giant fan that looks like a mini turbine. Uh, that is just driven mechanically that takes up all that space. And that's why it's so kind of bulbous looking uh, and you can't see behind you. Yes. And it also has to have a transmission like device because if you're taking direct uh, mechanical force off of, you know, the first stage of the engine and you have to transfer it, you know, vertically, I mean, there's gotta be some type of a, you know, transmission type system you know, the decelerates, you know, that, that fan, if you will. So, I mean, that, that's been a huge problem too. So, you know, basically, you know, the, the one thing I was, I, what I find interesting about this program is it was really the Marine Corps that really drove, you know, these requirements. And it's just, it boggles my mind that the they Air have Force, a lot of political influence, like yes. vastly discommensurate with their, uh, their kind of paper budget or uh, force size. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think you're also talking about the helmet. I think they, from what I remember, they basically took up another helmet that was less technically complicated. You know, you well, know, the original, I, go ahead. What the original one they had was just way too complicated. And I've, I've put that helmet on my head before. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't work even when I put it on, <laughs> you know? So, um, and one thing I would also say, like, I really want to talk about, you know, I was mostly focused on the Marine Corps and the Italian, uh, military that were basically the, the big, uh, you know, buyers of the F-35B. One thing I don't, I, I, I don't get is, you know, the Marine Corps prides itself on basically austere type of logistics. They claim that they're, you know, the first one's in the, the last one's out or whatever. That's all bullshit. But, you know, with the Marine Corps, you know, with the AVA B, it was a fairly austere aircraft. It was, 
completely, I mean, it was a very difficult plane to fly. I've talked to a lot of AV-8B pilots before. The Harrier. It was a very, yeah, the Harrier was very difficult to fly. Um, you know, with, with the F-35, I spent probably three months at the first Marine Corps base that uh, fielded the F-35. And the aircraft, we can get into this topic more later on in the podcast, but the aircraft, right as they left Fort Worth, they had to go completely into a depot type of position. And when I say a depot, I mean, you're talking about, it's not first line um, flight chiefs that maintain it. They had to go into a situation where they had to completely retrofit the lift van right behind it. So they were flying off out of Fort Worth. They would land at Yuma, and we had a depot team right there that had to completely retrofit that plane. And Talking about every the, um, every production unit or just the first yes. one? Yes. Yes, every so, production unit. So why why is Lockheed? I mean, I guess you're the final assembler, but Pratt and Whitney designed the engines, if I'm not mistaken. So why are you responsible for fixing every engine after it's put in? It wasn't the engine. It was the uh, it was the the gates that basically controlled that lift fan. Mm. You know, if you're going to do like a vertical takeoff and landing, you have okay. to have these big gates okay. on the the top of the plane yeah, the that intakes. opened up. Yeah. And the first version of it, it had like a big old, uh, you know, big old gate that came up the front of it and went towards the back. Mm-hmm. And then it came up with, you know, some other like folding type of a design. But, uh, you know, the thing that I, that I always, you know, told the Marines that I was working with is just like, how is this plane sustainable? Because we had to have like these little... I mean, when you're talking about a stealth plane, you're talking about making sure that there is no gaps at all. And when you're talking about a folding design mm. that folds in and out, I mean, any gap that you have is just going to be a radar signature. Yeah. Well, to be you fair, know, it is I, on the top. I mean, typically, you know, you're not going to see the top from the, the radar stations on the ground. Yeah. Um, what What did the uh, the Marine Corps pilots um technicians when you talk to them what did they of the plane At, you know in the early testing phases did they come to a lot of these same conclusions you did um it was kind of mixed i didn't really talk to the pilots so much as i i really talked to the officers that were you know officers and enlisted men that were uh, in charge of maintaining the aircraft and if you really want to know like how good an aircraft is you that's the people you really need to talk to is, you know, the people that are going to maintain it. Um, While we're on the subject of maintenance, uh, I may have had the acronym wrong, but I think it's ALIS automated logistics information system, I guess there's a big deal made about this thing being kind of one way to make the F 35, a more uh, effective logistics platform in a sense, because they're, they're trying to incorporate some of the advances in cloud computing and all the other stuff in the private sector they kind of come up with for civilian use. I shouldn't say private sector, I should say civilians, uh, because obviously there's private companies that the government works with, but the 
the idea was you would have a very advanced inventory kind of real-time information system. Uh, that That's limited my understanding, but do you have any comments on that aspect? Because it's obviously up your alley about maintenance yeah. and things like that. Well, Alice was basically my whole career with Lockheed, with the aviation side of things. Um, Alice is basically what they call commercial off-the-shelf software. I call it COTS. And basically, you had like SAP back at Lockheed, and you had another computer program called CMMS, which is uh, like um, computerized maintenance management software. Who, who developed then that? You had, Do you know? Yeah. So there's a bunch of tack on different tools. Do, that, do you know who made CMMS? What's that? Do you know who made the CMMS program? I didn't make it. No, no, I, I didn't mean you personally, but what company? Because SAP was the uh, is a German oh, software yeah. company. Their ERP. Yeah, SAP and... has been around for years. Yep. CMMS. I'm not sure who the prime contractor was with it, but you're talking about a bunch of different tack on different companies mm-hmm. that are trying to integrate a not just the maintenance type of system, but a, a supply chain type of system. You know, like with the whole, like if you ever watch like the newsreels with, you know, on YouTube with, with Lockheed, they talk about it like, oh, this plane is getting ready to land. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, the computer system already knows all the parts that it's going to need. Bullshit. Like it didn't work. Like when you're talking about multiple different companies that are trying to integrate like their proprietary software, it just doesn't work. And one of the, things that's really was really difficult about it uh, when I was in the program was you know, I was trying to test some of the software and try to say okay it it's it's prescribed to do X it's not doing that okay we've already got like three different contracts you know that are going to last for the next seven years like we need to put you know, some of these requirements in the contract, you know, for to get these companies to fix this sort of stuff. So, I mean, that's one of the things that's very different about the commercial world versus let's say the defense contractor world is things are, I mean, they're years ahead of schedule. I mean, they're, you can't just be like uh, Walmart and just say like, okay, or Amazon, we're going to do X and we're going to go ahead and do it. We're going to, you know, create this program or this feature or whatever with the defense world. No, you have to get it on contract and you have to know exactly what you want to do. You have to have the exact requirements that you want to do. And that's what made it very, very difficult. What is the traditional logistics chain for an aircraft maintenance program look like? Let's forget, you know, all the press releases from Lockheed for the moment, but let's go back 30 years before the internet, before computers really caught on to the extent they are today, obviously, um, at least what, what was the approach? Like you just had a bunch of spare parts and you had no idea, like you you didn't know like how often they would be needed. Like you just had like way more than you could anticipate needing, or they're trying to go to like just in time now. Like what's the difference? Well, there was never anything such as just in time, you know, with the military. 
I mean, that's just really, I mean, that that's a pure production type of environment. You know, what you're talking about here, like with the F-35 and even the F-22, you know, which is its precursor, um, you know, with the F-22, every copy that they ever made had its own build, what you call build. And it's, they call it provisioning or, or build, um, Every copy that you made had different parts on it. It's it's not like your car that you have today where you can go in an auto zone and say like, you know, I've got a 2012 Toyota Tacoma. I need X part. No. I mean, it's it's unique to every aircraft. Is that because and they that's what, just couldn't get the manufacturing process right? No. It's because um, they had rushed that aircraft into production too quickly and you know they found like okay you know the avionics on this doesn't work or you know the Mm -hmm. flapperons on this or the avionics don't work on this we need to you know make an engineering change on this aircraft so like with the f-22 every one of the f-22s out there are pretty much unique they don't have the same build and that's one thing that's that's definitely found on the F-35 is um, there have been so many iterations on that aircraft that, I mean, like one thing you'll find like in the news today on the F-35 is they're having problems with their supply chain. Well, guess what? You know, what's the big driver behind that? Every one of those planes is pretty unique, you know? So you're saying the F-35 also has that problem? Yes, absolutely. Yes. I mean, there's been a lot of engineering changes of it. And the biggest driver behind that is they rushed through, you know, their SDD contract, sustainment, development, and something else. I mean, they rushed through that. And, uh, yeah, I mean, all those planes are unique. And that's, that's not... Yeah, it's funny. It's funny you you say they rushed because most of the critics of the F thirty five will say it's been delayed and over budget. Um, well, when I when I say rushed, I mean politically they rushed, and uh, I mean this this program like when you have all these different requirements uh-huh. and you have like build this sucker to be, you know, the baddest, you know, son of a bitch that'll ever fly, like you have to you know, rush it through. Plus, I mean, you look at the political situation too. I mean, this, this plane is built in like pretty much every state in the United States. So it's got a whole lot of political clout behind it. So, well, this is again, going to what I'm sort of implying with the kind of empire strategy. Officially we're in a country called the United States and so you can see writ large how that works. Basically they the government doles out, you know, money to keep the allegiance of all these different states. But they're also doing it worldwide. I mean it's like the United Nations was an American idea. We're gonna roll up the world into the American Empire. Um and they're trying to do that with the contracts overseas. Now I don't I don't know to the degree which that really matters, but I mean my point is it's it's intentional and it's political uh, as you're saying it's it's there's a lot of uh complexity outside of the engineering world that has to be managed and that um that's really hard because you know unlike a a a fighter 
program back in the day that was going to the CIA and nobody knew about it, you know, so basically the number of cooks in the kitchen were a lot smaller. Uh, this is a public program and it's international and multi-state and it's just has so many people criticizing it, requesting, dropping out, adding money. That dimension is arguably probably the hardest, I would say, because, you know, you have an engineering problem. It's just a matter of time, usually, and in f- in figuring out the physics of it. But when you're dealing with people, there may be no convincing of some people. It, it's just there's there's no way around it. Like, you know, the divisions in the United States right now are probably irreconcilable, for example. And so you you don't always get what you want. And <laughs> it's like you get you get kind of a cluster cluster F uh, sometimes. Uh, anyway, just wanted to add some commentary on that. Um, I did have uh, another question, if unless you want to talk more about maintenance. Uh, but we mentioned the the sensor suite. Hans is bringing up the helmet. Uh, yeah. I wanted to add in that the plane itself is uh, designed, or at least intended, for a network-centric fighting uh, approach to warfare as opposed to... Uh, it, you really can't remove the network from any any war obviously because you you need communications i mean that's arguably one of the most important things you have in a war uh is the ability to communicate and coordinate but the the advances in technology obviously have gotten to the point where you can have real-time information as opposed to if you imagine back in world war ii or something you would have orders but then the the intel probably was wrong or out of date because you didn't have the real-time ability to communicate with people uh you were limited by the sort of curvature of the earth you didn't have satellites so you couldn't communicate over the horizon uh so it was really much less uh centralized in terms of the information much more decentralized you had to rely upon good judgment and things like that uh and just flying by your wits as opposed to today what what they're trying to do is they're trying to put these planes out there as sort of the forward line of reconnaissance uh and real-time decision making as opposed to before where you would just like go attack that thing and you know here's like a four-day-old uh aerial reconnaissance photo it, it may be wrong the Viet Cong may have like moved their camp of, of missile launchers uh, over over that mountain so who knows if it's still there but go look uh, now it's sort of like no you just go fly over there and then the sort of computer tells you exactly what's going on how many enemies are out there and then in addition to just the pilot that information gets relayed back to the AWACS system which has basically that funny looking radar system on top of its uh, its fuselage which is it's kind of like a commercial airliner with this big uh, it may be actually a, a radio tower i'm not exactly sure what that does but i think it's just for communications mainly and that's a that's kind of a, a an older version of this but where they would coordinate all the information into this one hub and then they would kind of in semi real time send out like updates to all the different airplanes and and people who are in in charge of deciding you know what things are going to going to happen and so what the plane is designed to do in addition to the pilot is to relay all that information back to the warfighter strategists and generals and people like that uh to be able to fight more effectively um and that's a good idea i don't know how easy it is to pull off or how effective it is uh but uh it makes some sense but i think that gets to why again the software complexity just ramps up because you have all these sensors feeding all this information back in and these things have to be going up to satellites, basically. And then you have latency issues. You have to get around that. Uh, and then 
the other thing about uh, the software, uh, I have some numbers on this. For the F-18, which is one of the, the jets that the Navy is going to get rid of if they take on the F-35 full-time, um, that's the Hornet. And that basically is one of the... Um, one of the more kind of used airplanes for smart bomb deliveries these days because they're carrier launch and they, they go off and they have uh, all these variants of the airplane with basically every version has a more complicated sensor suite and uh, system of uh, targeting, targeting system as well uh, for the smart bombs. Because uh, if you go back to World War II again, you're basically flying armies of f uh excuse me not f uh b-17s bomber bomber airplanes over germany in giant formations dropping these iron bombs that have zero guidance on them they basically just have little tails on them so they don't like flap around they just go down straight relatively but there's no guidance on them after that they're not missiles they don't know where to go they're just dropped and so they're carpet bombing um the gulf war demonstrated the advantage of having targeting systems on the missiles themselves but in order to do that correctly, you have to program them for the types of targets, the sort of jamming t systems that are out there. And so it really gets complicated on the software side. And so the F-18's uh, version, so going from the AB model, had uh, 943,000 lines of code on it. Uh, the CD model had twice as much, about 2,100 um, lines of code. The night attack had 3,000. 3, uh, uh, so three, I guess three million actually lines of code, and then um, the CD XN version had twice that, and it just keeps going up and up and up and up. So you can see like as they add in more quote unquote smartness to these weapons, it just gets like more complicated, and that's just for the the targeting. I mean, we're talking about helmets, we're talking about the sensor communications, uh, you're talking about this stupid lift fan that's got to probably. I don't know what the pilot's role in sort of the takeoff and landing of that is, but I got to imagine there's a lot of uh, autopilot for that thing because the balancing of those things has got to be really tough. Um, so I just wanted to add in the, the details about the, the software complexity and where it's going. Well, I, can, I can add a little bit more. So from what I've read, and Matt, correct me if you've heard anything different, but from what's, I guess, come out over time about the F-35, is their plane itself runs on about 8 million lines of code, give or take. And then on top of that, there is um, a list system that's sort of incorporated alongside the plane and with machines on the ground and satellites and so on. Uh, and that's logistics, maintenance, briefing, all that kind of stuff. That's about 24 million lines of code. Um, to, to give an example, to you know, give this in comparison, Facebook, the massive uh, organization of tech. <laughs> the, the, you mean the photo sharing <laughs> website? <laughs> yeah, so, but well, yeah. I just I want to make a point here that like, kind of what Hank said. Facebook runs on about um, give or take sixty something million lines of code. Allegedly, you can see, if you add all these pieces of software up and all these sophisticated software up, this, this is very clearly a, a very large enterprise software engineering project. Um, this has all the hallmarks of um, many of the problems I've seen in software development personally and that I've seen uh, other people talk about in software development. Um, any video you watch on the subject of things like DevOps on overall uh, software architecture, these are huge problems for large companies that 
have to manage tens of millions of lines of code. A lot of it developed in-house, which create actually creates a, a whole another set of problems. You're developing internal libraries. Um, and when you read about things like uh, uh, this, this radar system, uh, this big antenna has that, uh, again, re a revolutionary piece of technology that uh, uh, Northrop provided and that Lockheed kind of worked on, um, the, the active electronically scanned arrays, or ASA, is, uh, requires such a large amount of processing power on the plane itself. The plane rapidly has become almost like the 1980s mainframe. It has all of the hallmarks of an old IBM sort of turn of the, the 80s and 90s revolu IT revolution mainframe with a lot of integrated processing power, with a lot of I.O. that really hampers, I think, probably the weight, if I had to guess, um, a lot of the heat. It has to have its own cooling system just for its onboard computation. It has to have a whole set of independent arrays of wires in order to maintain those data connections and all of that consistent I.O. <clears throat> well, I mean, don't we have microprocessors? I mean, how, how big are we talking about? It's not a mainframe, obviously. So. I know. Obviously, it's not a mainframe, but it, it starts to look like it's given its overall structure and the purpose. Well, the radar for, system is big. I have, I mean, I have no but... idea. Yeah. how much processing power it actually has I, I i would say that it is probably a very there's a very powerful unix super for each one of these machines mm -hmm. they can I mean, it's closer to a mainframe than you might imagine when you yeah. start talking about the amount of io going through all of these sensors yeah they probably the do actual, a lot of parallel stuff but it's that's the you know the, the amount of math that's being done there like the lead time on these projects means that they're always running with ridiculously obsolete cpus exactly yeah. so it's not going to be doing a huge yeah. amount of number crunching there's mm -hmm. going to be a lot of offloading to asics but you know if you kind of look at overall, you know, that things like guarantees of real time, like that's just incredible pain in the ass. Like making sure that every tick, you update all the inputs, you run the algorithm, you update mm -hmm. all the outputs, you don't, you know, have a, uh, a stall out, like, you know, a freaking uh, YouTube loading spinny logo thing when you're uh, pressing on the throttle when it's all fly by wire. Mm -hmm. Like that, the complexity of that, I mean, it's it does approach like you know your hardcore big iron. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I agree with I, you guys that on the I, sort of operational to, level, but Hans. Yeah. I, I also have to to wonder. I mean, Matt said he put on the helmet and didn't work, which is kind of shocking. But um, at some point. You also have to account for is is this overload? It's one person flying the plane. It's not it's not a team of of people. It's not like the star. It's not the Star Trek Enterprise where you have twenty people doing you know various tasks, monitoring all kinds of things. It's one what is guy. an interesting point because some of the uh, the fighter aircraft that the U.S. used to fly, they've seemed to have gone away from this. We used to have two pilots. Uh, the Top Gun had famously, you know, two pilots in the F-14. As an aside, yeah, and and, and I, I really, I don't know. Again, Matt, Matt, please correct me, but I really have to wonder if, in the development process, the, the, the 
information processing of a human being. I mean, I know aircraft, fighter aircraft pilots are pretty smart guys, and they're very tuned guys, and, and they, they filter well, this up, but I can only, I can't imagine that you can actually visually process all of this, all these things coming onto your face and, and all these sensors while you're potentially in a dogfight or while you're on a mission. No, they don't really well, dogfight in these things, first of all, but yeah, go ahead, Matt. Yeah, wow. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, good points made here. I mean, the one thing I will say about the F-35, the biggest selling point on that program is its integration. Yeah. And, I mean, that, that's a good selling point. I mean, back when I was trying to sell that aircraft and I would go out there and, you know, you know, try to convince everybody that, you know, hey, don't don't believe your lying eyes. You know, believe me, I'm telling you, this program is going to be good. <laughs> um, this program, you know, if you look at the F-22, you look at the F-15, you look at all these other, pro, you know, these what we call legacy programs that have that have come before. They all had different sensors. It was not integrated. You had like maybe a Honeywell, you know, radar. You had maybe a Raytheon, you know, defense management type of system. Uh, with the F-35, there are very few buttons on that that aircraft. You know, when you look at a legacy aircraft... Yeah, it's all going through the same like operating system to use a yes, desktop computer. Yes, it's going through all... I mean, I... Yeah. And I that's what I've always said. Like you have BAA systems, which is the British outfit. And we had BAA people, you know, in our office at that time. And, you know, we had to be careful what we said to them and everything else. I mean, there's a whole bunch of different uh, firewalls that you had to deal with. Well, yeah, apparently the but, U.S. is not giving access to the source code to any of the international partners. No. And, <laughs> which is just like... <laughs> Like imagine sinking not not only like the amount of money that you're sinking into this airplane, but one and a half the, trillion. You know the the deferred uh, opportunity cost, not just of like oh we could have had this plane a long time ago, but like your pilots training, your radar interop, everything else. And then it's like oh yeah, and presumptively the United States can just shut this plane down or anyone who compromises the United States government. So like, yes. well, I mean, like, I mean, uh, if you look at Eglin Air Force Base that I went to before, it goes the other way. I think it's called too, the, but go ahead. Yeah. It's called the ISR L lab. I mean, it basically oh, yeah. mm -hmm. it takes all of the different like MIGs out there tries to collect all of their different radar signatures. C4ISR, that's like the military yes. command uh, so, acronym. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Command and control. Stuff. But anyway, I mean, I mean, what other option do these countries have? Like, what other option does Denmark have? They're spending like almost 100% well, of their budget like buying well, this. I mean, it's just a crude, for a it, it's or, like a crude yeah, screw question, you. Right? to your erstwhile allies when you don't even allow them to run like a tested build of the software on the plane that they're running. Like, I mean, it, given the complexity of the thing, it's totally possible that you would be able to introduce vulnerabilities that they would realistically never discover. But just to, to not even give them access to the code is just like, yeah, we're going to screw you and what are you going to do about it? 
you don't even have to introduce vulnerabilities. I mean, the vulnerabilities come with a plane that's entirely right. integrated. I mean, if you yeah, look any, at the anything F-22, that like does IO and has eight million lines of code, like ipso facto has vulnerabilities. I I, I think the plane altogether is like thirty three million lines of code, and you know, I mean, well, that includes Alice, <laughs> right? Yeah, that includes Alice. 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 I call it Alice. You would expect it to be the point of vulnerability interjection. Like, I mean, they've done this sort of thing with commercial um, plane software where it turns out, you know, the uh, engineers designing it uh, didn't really anticipate that the call would be coming from inside the house. So it's possible to uh, get a, uh, basically, you can get a line from something like the USB charge port uh, on the in-flight entertainment to the actual plane software. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Alice, I'll I'll tell you this much about Alice. Um, This was 2013, and I was chosen to be, and I've already been doing a, a a whole bunch of side activation out at Yuma to try to get them prepared for this aircraft. And it finally arrived out there, and we were having trouble with the tires. And it's still a problem to, to this day. Like, most of my day was was taken up with having to solve tire problems. Like, it's not just the software. It's the whole plane itself. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's terrible. And then, you know, with, with the Alice, I mean, the Alice... Has gone through a whole lot of different iterations with it. You got Alice 1.03, you got Alice 2.01. When I got to Yuma, we were working off Excel spreadsheets. That That's all, how dude, bad. that happens everywhere. I, I mean, people like they it's try to go in sign. and sell these like complicated. We're going to solve everything. You know, one ring to rule them all. Software packages for your company. And then you realize you've been talking to Microsoft the same time, and they're just trying to replace Excel 2003 with Excel 2006. Excel works, (laughs) and that people understand it, and that's what ends up happening because if you bite off more than you can chew, these programs just get dusted, they they just sit there, and people start relying on spreadsheets again. This reminds me of um, when I was a a wee intern for a, a company, I another project that I was not involved with, but I was sitting next to uh, engineers and, and contractors who were working on uh, um, implementing or- Oracle Hyperion, which is a very complex... Wait, what happened to Fusion? Is that what happened after Fusion? I don't know. I hate that company, but yeah, please I don't know. But uh, anyways, and, and Oracle Hyperion, Oracle itself, it's terrible, terrible reputation, overly complex software. Hyperion in particular was... was very, very complicated. At one point, they were flying out specialized contractors from Utah, I think of all places, uh, every week to come into the office and work on this project to get, to get Hyperion. And uh, I, I had, this is when I was in university, I left the internship to go back to university. Um, but I had a friend there who, who continued, he was a full-time employee. And he told me that uh, maybe four or five months later, they abandoned the project entirely after they had sunk maybe almost a year's worth of time, millions of dollars into trying get trying to get this going. And they went with a uh, very small HR management system and Excel. 
they were using Excel dashboards just just to streamline this whole process. And they they, it, they found that it worked for them because they weren't that big a company. They didn't really need Hyperion, but they, it seemed like they did at the time. And they kept believing that you know they could they could make this work, that it would make the company really valuable, that it could really help with a lot of problems. Um, and they sank a ton of time into integrating proprietary code and proprietary APIs, and proprietary data sources into Hyperion, and ended up just giving literally gave up. Had to get, had to basically call it quits because it was becoming too complex. It, it, Code management was becoming too complicated. They were talking about having to hire three QA people just to test that there were no security vulnerabilities, that the data was accurate. There was a potential. There was potential that if they integrated this with their um, with what they were using for healthcare, it could give the wrong information to the wrong person. It, it could be a total calamity from an HR standpoint. They had to give up, and this happens consistently with big software projects. And I know you're talking. You're talking about like from a hardware problem, tires just not not working. Maybe you know early on in the episode you mentioned that the maintenance on these planes is really the crux of the problem. Software maintenance, uh, hardware maintenance, supply chain maintenance. What you know, in what you've seen, why is the maintenance so difficult? Is it just is it just because there's so many parts and it's so difficult to coordinate ten different manufacturers and three different software engineering outfits just to get you know, a plane updated and and hardware maintenance getting you know, going? Well, I mean, I would say, I mean, with this program, like after you had the consolidation, you know of, of you know, all the major defense contractors. I mean, those companies really didn't go away. I mean, there's a lot of mom and pop places out there that manufacture, you know, specific parts, you know, for this aircraft. And when you're trying to develop a plane that has got a basically a huge flat screen TV with like maybe 12 buttons like physical buttons on that plane, you're talking about a huge amount of, of integration that is just really hard to wrangle. And, uh, you know, like parts not fitting. I mean, good gosh. Like there was a big scandal back in like 2010 with this program where they had, you know, like a billion dollars worth of parts, you know, on this program that were in the Fort Worth warehouse that were obsolete, basically. I mean, they were basically designed for old, you know, test planes or whatnot. Cause I mean, you have to keep the test planes going. I mean, that is the one thing that, that Lockheed is really good at is trying to keep these test planes going and they will steal parts. When I say steal parts, I mean, they're, they're taking parts away from another program try to fit it on you know to this program and it's just it's it's too complicated of an aircraft i mean it's just a maintenance nightmare and you know like when you're talking about the lines of code and everything like that i mean this is this is the plane that we're relying on our defense for and it's 
pretty, I mean, it's, it's come clear to me that this is basically, you know, a congressional, you know, handout. To, That's what Pierre Spray says. It's a handout to lock. Well, I, I've, I've got a lot of uh, Pierre Spray. Like, I, I really don't take a lot of credit. I don't really uh, think highly of him. But, I, I, uh, I'm with you. I, I think he's a lot of hot air sometimes. Uh, but you know, to that no, point, I he's think, on he's on RT all the time, and of course, uh, of like course. some of the stuff that <laughs> he course. says is just completely just. I mean, just complete garbage. Uh, he likes being like. On camera. I mean, he yeah. you know he, well, he comes from that generation. Like you mentioned earlier about him fighter having mafia. this yeah. weird hatred for um, multi-role aircraft. He comes from that boomer generation where there was there was a real philosophy. Could, and especially after World War II, we could design an aircraft for every single purpose because it, you know the, the world was their oyster. And from an engineering and resource management standpoint, mm. the, there was no limit. You could do whatever you wanted, and so you could design specific aircraft, and specific models of each aircraft for specific jobs. And it wasn't a big deal if you had to decommission them two years later because they weren't worthwhile anymore. I think that, I think that a lot of the stuff was here. Pierce Bray really comes from him. He probably, I think he has some good points. This, I, you know, I've seen some of his stuff every now and then on the, on the program, but a lot of it just comes from he, he just, he simply just comes from an old generation that really doesn't understand the constraints. Well, I mean, here's the thing about Pierre Spray is he didn't, he didn't like whenever he gets introduced, he always said, I designed the A-10 and the F-16. Yeah, that right there. He was true. a government. Yeah. He, you know, he was a government employee, and I've looked up on his biography. He was a statistician. Like that's not the way <laughs> the government works. You hire contractors to go out there and build and design stuff. You know, and he's going out there and taking credit for like I designed and built the F-16, and nobody, you know, he. he you know, they introduce him as that, and he doesn't, you know, contradict them at all. And that's just really, that right there just showed that I really can't trust this guy. Mm-hmm. You know? In, in, in 2011, um, uh, Robert Gates, who was the Secretary of Defense, put the program kind of on probation or something. Mm-hmm. Can't, that didn't put it on ice, but put it on probation. Well, I think he fired one of the uh, directors at the Defense Department also. Hines. General Hines. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it was General Hines. And then Lockheed, you know, fired one of their guys. I think his name was uh, Crawford. Or I don't, I can't remember. Well, in that, in that period, they allegedly they made 600 or so major changes. Major and minor changes to the plane and they... But before then, one of the biggest running concerns up to that point was the weight. It's too weighty. It's mm-hmm. too heavy. This was creating a lot of avionic problems. And they shaved off 2,700 pounds or something. Um, and the program was put pretty back. good. Yeah. <laughs> to, to their credit. Pretty, I mean, I'll give it to Lockheed. They, they did a good job. And, okay, there's problems with this. we got to figure it out. And um, you had mentioned that on some piece of software on the helmet, they ended up just going with a less, less complex version. Was there a lot of that in that kind of that two year time period where they just said, well, we'll just go with simplify. 
a less complex version of X. And then they did that for 600 things mm-hmm. to try and bring the weight down, bring the yeah. cost down. Bring That's a good bucket. question. Well, I mean, the weight came down to the F-35B, which has really been the problem problem child of the How whole they just program. tell the Marines to use the fucking Harrier? <laughs> I mean, like, I don't get it. Why do Marines need... maybe Use the F-22, use the Harrier, why, why, and Why did the Marines need their own planes? It's something well, I should, should also the, ask. Why... Why cannot why the we have inter-service dynamics of that get crazy? Well, like we have the, the warfighting military, you know that's what combat at arms is all about. You use all the branches together, and that's how you fight a war. I don't understand yeah, but why that the only really works if they don't see each other as their primary enemies. I just don't get it. I've never understood why the Marines of all people, and why not that, the army. Why does That's, the army not get their own big egos? Um, yeah. Colonel Jessup's, I guess. <laughs> I mean, these were these were like political battles that were settled in literally in like the late forties, as far oh, as who yeah. got what capabilities. And forty-seven. Yeah, and e- even even going so far as like the relative budget proportions um, haven't really changed since the uh, the early fifties, I believe. And that's one one thing I was talking about earlier is like this blows my mind that the Marine Corps got to drive the requirements of this aircraft. Like, as I've said before, like this aircraft would look a whole lot more like the F-22 if it hadn't been for the Marine Corps. I mean, that lift fan has been a huge, you know, weight restriction not only that, but did, like, did the why Chinese, the when they stole all the plans, did they go with that or did they skip it? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> I mean, the Chinese version of this thing looks the same. It's it's like it reminds me of the, the Soviet version of the space shuttle. It's like the same the, airframe. Uh, J eleven, J thirty two, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'm you know, one thing about the Soviets, you know, you're talking about the Buran and the, the uh-huh. space shuttle. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah. A hell of a lot better than I mean it did do flights and you know the space shuttle was basically a low you know high orbit flying death trap basically. Well, but that it actually things. flew. The Buran never left the ground. I mean, it, it's it, there's literally uh, like a, a shell of a a hangar that has like an old one in it, but it it's it, useless. It flew, I think, t- two times. They back probably in tested it, but it, my point is they. they it was no people around. on board. Yeah, yeah but. Yeah. But uh, anyway, but yeah, I, mean, I was asking about the lift fan. Did they did the Chinese put it put it in theirs? No, I think they did the A model. You know, the Air yeah, Force. There model. you go. So I mean, that that just shows you, you know, if if you got this is sort of what what I was going to say about the Marines and the U.S. government as a whole. U.S. government's a clusterfuck. I mean, it's like it's not like the communist governments, or I mean, we don't have any alternatives to communism or capitalism, apparently, but. You know what I mean? It's it's a democracy. And so when Trump got in, everyone's like, oh, you know, the wall and, and the liberals were, were legitimately scared. Oh, the wall. Oh, no, we can't get, you know, slave voters anymore to the United States to vote for our evil party. But um, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it's there are factions and groups that have way more power than you might think. And so this is just another example of that. It's just the Marines. I wouldn't know that, but apparently they they run a lot. I mean, Mattis was the uh, came from the Marines. He was the defense secretary. There, there's a slight clue, but it's um, 
it's interesting and they, they tough talk and they have a big reputation of being like the tough guys. And so I'm sure that has a lot of weight and it's, um, it's not like, you know, where the Chinese communist party, uh, uh, Xi Jinping, he's basically the dictator. And so if a decision and they is have made, their own factional know, politics, of course, they have their own, of course, uh, their just, own imperatives going on. Like the people's liberation army, they were still running like, you know, factories making furniture and all sorts of random grifts all up and down. The difference seems to be just, I mean, by virtue of the size mm-hmm. of the U.S. Uh, defense budget, I mean, dwarfing the rest of the world combined, I think. You say still, that, but the Chinese are projected to actually outpace it uh, in 20 years or so, uh, maybe 30 years. Yeah, that's difficult to project out that far. And it's it's also difficult to get relative costs like it, it's a, it's a American tradition to get filthy, stinking rich selling stuff to the government going all the way back to the Revolutionary War. That's just ingrained into American culture. And when you don't have any realistic peer competitors and you're developing this one thing that's supposed to be one thing to all people, it's like it's almost it's a, it's a case of the worse, the better, the more contradictory requirements you can layer on this thing the worse it does which because there's no alternative means there's a lot of opportunities to fix things like all of this stuff is just an endless money funnel which explains why there's so many nice mcmansions in northern virginia what what was the reaction within lockheed to uh initially a lot of the Complaints about the F-35 and a lot of the feedback that the plane was getting from from the military and, and from the government. Uh, I can tell you the, the I mostly worked with uh, you know the, the supply chain type of people, the logistics officers, and you know the senior NCOs with the program. Uh, had very little interaction with the pilots. Um, at the squadron level, but they hated it. I mean, they hated it. They had a program that was called now Gomez, which is basically like DOS prompt. I mean, but it worked for them. I mean, you needed a part, you could work it. And then supposedly we've got this great system called Alice that, you know, could like read the plane and, you know, know exactly what needed to be done. They hated it. You know, the people that had to do the grunt work absolutely hated that plane and put me in a really bad position as the representative from the company, you know, that that had to keep these guys satisfied, you know, with the program. And I mean, it was costing them, you know, a lot of extra man hours and. You know, we didn't know if the plane was going to work or not. There was just no way to really find that out. And, you know, with the legacy programs, like I was at Yuma base, Marine Corps Air Station Yuma. And uh, they were flying the AV-8B. And that sucker is a really technical plane to fly. It's really hard to do. But they still did it. You know, even with these 1970s technologies, it was just it was just downright embarrassing that you know I was here and this 
plane was a maintenance nightmare. It was a supply chain nightmare. You didn't know what, you know, parts to bring out. I mean, every plane that flew out to Yuma had to go through depot maintenance. And depot maintenance is, is something that you usually do. You usually send it to a specific base. You had to send it to like a special base to like retrofit it. You had to have really skilled people. And that's why I was there. I had to go well, through. But why are you so far away from the production floor? Why do you have to be all the way at the Marine Corps base? Why can't you be at the factory fixing it? And then before they ship it off, even it makes no sense to me. Couldn't you communicate to the factory that you, you guys need to fix this before you send it to us and then or you go over there? No. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, that would make sense to you and me. Like, go ahead and fix it before it flies off. <laughs> so, I mean, again, look, this like, is a basic manufacturing principle. No, the longer yeah. you <laughs> wait to fix something, the more expensive it gets. The earlier you catch no. it, the cheaper it is. If you fuck up, you, you're supposed to fix it as the manufacturer. <laughs> no, but like... Yeah, that would be the same play, you know, the same, you know, warranty type of operation that you would have, you know, like with a car. But again, you're talking about changes that have to be made on the plane. You have to contract those out and they, they might be, you know, in some of the cases that I was doing seven years out, like you have to do it. Like this was the contract specification we have to build it this way and we're going to get paid for it and we're going to ship it out. And that's one of the things that's really becoming a major issue with this program is yeah, they're, they're selling these aircraft, but you know, when they have the flyaway cost, they're always talking about, you know, the flyaway cost. It's the DD 214 or DD250 process where you have, you know, basically, um, um, you know, an American civil servant, you know, that buys off on the program and they buy the pro they buy that aircraft based upon that contract, but that contract might be like five or six years old. So, I mean, that's basically so what the issue is that like the requirements are obsolete or yes, basically, I mean, they are building these aircraft you know, with requirements that are five or six years old and they're buying them and they're going to have to spend, you know, X amount of dollars to retrofit them, but they met the requirements and they can DD two fifty them out to the U S government. So like when Lockheed is talking about like, Oh, we've reduced the cost from 110 million down to 80 million. Well, that didn't keep it, you know, account all the retrofits and the, you know, depot maintenance that you have to do, which is extremely expensive. You have to completely retrofit that aircraft, you know, to get them up to cost or get them up to, you know, specification, you know, it does not keep in. No, this, this would absolutely not fly in not to make a pun, but this would not fly at all in a lot of the private sector, especially when you're dealing with manufacturing or if you're, uh, you're putting out software. If I put out software for a client and I told them, by the way, the libraries in, that I put in that software, all the binary files are five years old and you're going to have to fix that. 
and then I go and tell uh, my executive committee that, in fact, cost of making that software has gone down, and we're in the black on this. If I was then found out to have done that, I would be fired. I'd probably probably be sued. My reputation would be totally destroyed. I'd, I would never. I'd probably not work for at least a year, and I have to take a shitty job writing like doing web dev work like a, like a fifth grader uh for 20 i don't know five dollars an hour in india that's how bad it would be if i did something like that. but your clients have options right so right. if you hearken back to markets that are kind of a monopoly like at&t back in the day or you know ibm for certain markets back in the day or uh you know, even when you have extreme vendor lock-in, like, uh, you know, you just, you're all in on the Oracle train, you do end up with situations like that where they're yeah, like, yeah, Oracle. you know, that's a cool story, but, uh, you know, consult the contract. And uh, if you want to switch away from us, it's going to cost you several million dollars. So I suggest that you just pay for the changes. Yeah. To be fair, this happens in the private sector too. It's typically from big companies it, it, where there's not a does, lot of options. It does happen. It does happen. Yes. But we, we get the, your point. We the get your ability, point. the ability to get away with it yeah. is I think much more difficult. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah. I right. at some level, you know, this, we, you should look at this almost like accounting fraud that Lockheed is basically uh, committing. And I'm sure that if someone, if there was... Well, they, they actually were committing literal accounting fraud early in the program. Uh, if you watch oh, the really? Nova, Nova uh, special on the flyoff between Boeing and Lockheed, uh, Lockheed basically um, didn't account for $100 million of spending. Uh, they basically wrote checks and then they didn't write it down or something and they're like oops uh was, can you can you spot us 100 mil gov you know and they're like they, yeah oh okay um i don't know how that one was like acceptable but yeah, yeah there, that's a standard thing to yeah. like during the contracting process particularly for like the the modular handgun system had this uh, this issue with that contract too where you will pull a fast one on the price of the underlying versus, uh, you know, claimed future maintenance expenses. And then, like, surprise, turns out, like, you can't actually supply it for that cost. Um, or, like, you're using some of the initial sales as a loss leader because you'll have other stuff that just kind of blindly follows that contract allocation. Like every time the U.S. invades a country and then like overthrows their government and switches over all of their weapon systems, presumably you end up with that contract. So, I mean, some of these things amount to fraud and some of them are just kind of like, uh, you know, smart business. I wanted to make a broader yeah. point uh, about, you know, because like when, when we talk about like, oh, the government, you know, it doesn't have competition. It's kind of a libertarian talking point. It's not wrong. But I think there is something to be said for having a single supplier for national security reasons, for example, and also for, and you may disagree with this, but innovation reasons, because um, I read a very good article, I'm going to link to it, uh, in the American Conservative about what has happened to the American manufacturing base as a whole. Um, it's it's too detailed to like go through every example. Excellent article. Yeah, uh, I'm glad you read it. Uh, but it's basically giving uh, the sort of uh, explanation that 
the financialization and Wall Streetization, if that's a term we can use, of the American economy has forced very short-term thinking. Uh, and what happened in the 90s, especially after the Cold War kind of went away, and the globalization took hold with all the trade deals with NAFTA and then the WTO with uh, China, is that all the American manufacturing companies, and they specifically talked about Bell Labs uh, at AT&T, which then became Lucent, uh, and it was like that stupid you know, IPO craze stuff back in the 90s, the dot-com bubble. They were trying to get in on that, basically. What they did was they basically they, they oriented everything to the stock price. And so if the executives weren't making quarterly earnings, okay, we're talking about like, you know, the contrast with Lockheed where it's like you have a six-year lead time for like some part on an airplane versus like every three months you have to like beat your beat or meet your expectations on the stupid earnings call. Um, this put like this very narrow-minded uh, – set of glasses on the executives in America. And what ended up happening is all they could figure out in that really narrow window of the opportunity to invent stuff was Carly Fiorina, for example, who was a miserable candidate for the Republicans back in 2016, if you remember that. Um, but, and also trying to run for governor in California. She didn't make that. She was, I think fired from Hewlett Packard, uh, but she was at Lucent. Uh, and her big genius idea was to, sell to startups, give them startup financing, and then they would basically default after they went bust. But it would look good in the short run. And so that was her genius idea. And then her genius idea at Hewlett Packard was to merge with Compaq. And that was a disaster in most people's view in retrospect. Uh, and actually not too many people at the, uh, a few people at the time actually thought it was a stupid idea too, but they were shut up basically because it was she, uh, she, she destroyed uh, a lot of HPs. She turned it into a printer company. Okay, yeah, that was like the, a lot of their, their the most innovative company in Silicon Valley for the longest time. And she just financialized everything and she outsourced everything. Okay, yeah. and they, they, she was at Lucent doing the same crap. And so we've lost a lot of our technology. I mean, China has the manufacturing base for so much of this stuff. And like these stupid professors who would like, you know, get up there and be like, oh, it's okay. We could, we could specialize in marketing and R&D. You don't get to do proper research and development if you're not making things. You don't understand how it works. You can't do it on a drawing board. You have to be right there like we talked about in the Skunk Works episode with Kelly Johnson combining the manufacturing with uh, the research and the engineering stuff. So this article basically is talking about how you can't do this like everybody competes, you know, fight each other to the death and it's all short term. There is something to be said for having these longer term programs and less competition, as weird as it may sound to your libertarian instincts. There is something to be said for that because America has been hollowed out. I mean, it just is a joke. Like, what do we make anymore? We make stuff that like we don't allow for national security reasons in competition, but believe it or not, those are actually world beating programs. Uh, the automotive industry with Trump, you know, beating them with a, a stick has like not moved everything to Mexico. Thank God. But it's like, realistically, do people actually think I'm going to get on my soapbox, you know, for the 10th time today, but it's like, do people really want America just to be Facebook? I mean, what do you do? You want to make airplanes? Do you want to make cars? I, I, don't you think that's important? I don't get people who are just like, oh yeah, you just open borders and free trade and everything moves around where the cheapest cost and everything will be great. No, dude. Like the history of this country was an industrial superpower. That's why it won the Second World War. Won, quote unquote. But you know, it it won militarily at least. 
and not politically in a lot of our opinions, but it was basically the, the strength of the protectionist system that was set up to allow that stuff to develop. And then it's just been destroyed and it's just crazy. So I just wanted to add that in to, to say that, you know, well, the, the solution is to subcontract out to uh, Korean companies or something. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, you, and, and this gets to another well, point, which maybe we can conclude on, but I'll save that for later. But Hans, go ahead. I wanted to hey. add our guest really quick. Um, there's been a lot of Northrop technology that showed up in, in this plane and probably technology from other companies. Does Lockheed get along well with these companies and how does that relationship even function oh i think yeah i think that northrop technically lost the 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 holistic contract to lockheed uh or at least the main contract for actually developing the plane do they are they the i think the common idea that people have about the defense contractors the big ones is that they're all polluting together um is that True is, is there been a lot of problems in integrating the technologies from these two different Well, one of the things that you have is, you know, when they consolidated a lot of these companies back in the early 1990s, uh, yeah, you have a lot of smaller ones. You know, Raytheon was one of them before they got bought out by, you know, United Technologies or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they, they know each other very, very well. Uh, like when General Hines, I think it was General Hines, you know, got fired uh, from the U.S. government. Uh, at the same time, Lockheed knew that they had to uh, get rid of their, you know, president of the F-35 program. And where did he go? He went straight to Raytheon. So, yes. Uh, yes, I mean, there's... Definitely a whole bunch of, um, I mean, they all know each other. They all know each other. Um, it's, yeah. It seems um, uh, that sort of the defense contractor, uh, the bigger defense contractor, Cabal, uh, has really has created a situation where you not only do you not have a uh, necessary alternative, let's say, but because they're integrating each other's technology now, there really is no higher standard of excellence that you could potentially go to. There, and there might never be a higher standard of excellence. Uh, and that, you know, they're all probably, if I had to guess, I, I do not work in anything near or adjacent to defense contracting from a technical standpoint. But if I had to guess, at some level, they're using some similar libraries, they're using similar hardware, they're using similar engineers, using similar models for diagnostics. Maybe we've hit a point where uh, we're never going to get good engineering or, or, or just straightforward, uh, uncomplicated engineering solutions uh, because there's no one else left who can come up with a new idea that will actually work because the U.S. government has become reliant on basically distributing jobs out almost arbitrarily to the different um, major ones just to avoid accus. 
accusations of favoritism or, or, or nepotism, it seems to almost like an arbitrary um, handout process. And they expect across the board, you know, a certain level of delivery. And that certain level of delivery is, is not good and it's overly complicated. Well, it's basically become the old Soviet model of the arsenal system. If you look at the old Soviet model, you know, where they're trying to keep up, you know, with the Americans, they basically had design bureaus at that time. And they would have, I mean, you would have like, you know, the Mikulian design bureau. Right. Yeah. Tupolev and I can't remember the other. Sukhoi. Sukhoi. So you'd have those and they're basically government funded. They would come up with the design and then you would have, you know, basically government, you know, civil servants, you know, build the aircraft. I mean, that's basically what we have today. You know, when you have Northrop, you have got Raytheon, you got Lockheed and Boeing. I mean, that's basically the same thing. It's just in a different, they spread it out differently. Well, and in, in line with what you mentioned earlier, that um, uh, when the military actually receives the planes from the manufacturers, we are using uh, military engineers, basically civil servants, on some level, not too different from how the Soviets would have regarded them, uh, to then finish the manufacturing process, to work on these planes. So, you know, at some level, you have to ask, what is the point of having Lockheed as a private corporation on the stock exchange when it is effectively just a manufacturing depot for uh, the United States military? It, it seems it's almost become like, you know, or poses the question, why don't we just totally go with the Soviet model of just creating a bureau called the Lockheed Bureau? Well, and it's, have them work on projects. It's basically have. is the it basically is a Soviet model, and when you when you look at it, look at unionization in the United States today. There are very few union run operations today. Very few UAW, but like when you look at um, you know the defense contractors, I mean they're all unionization. And it's I, I I can go on to that you know for for hours on what goes on with there, but yeah I mean they're all union employees I mean and to get into that union like you have to know somebody like so it is very much like the Soviet model. Well, I wanted yeah. to uh, oh. Well, I would I would just say really quickly, if you were king of the of America <laughs> and you had the ability to change this, what in your experience having worked with these companies and having worked uh, in this industry, what would you do That's to, a big, to make big, it better? Big question. Are you talking about? Yeah, no, it's a big question, but yeah. at, a, at a very high level. How do we turn the clock back on a lot of this bullshit? Because it, at some level, I'm concerned that this is bad engineering and it's going to get a lot of people killed that didn't need to die. Well, oh gosh, I mean, they're—I mean, you probably have to change the entire constitution 
you know, to get it to where I <laughs> Yeah, how's he king, first of all? <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I, I would completely change everything. But what I would say is, uh, for one thing, I mean, the military budget today is like, what, like a trillion dollars? Like, mm-hmm. like if you, you know, if you uh, count like the CIA and everything else, like it's well over a trillion dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but CIA self finances. Don't worry about them. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> a little okay. Joke, but yeah, not so much. Cokeheads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, they call it the cocaine importation agency. Well, the, so. okay. the, the long running rumors that the CIA managed to seal uh, U.S. printing press plates many years ago. That's how they financed some of the monorail. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, but I don't know. I guess if I was king, I would just say, like, look at our. I would just say, like, what do you need? I would find like generals. Here's one thing too: is if you look at, and I was uh, worked with the army before I worked with the air force on the missile defense project. Um, you know, you look at like the average. We have eighteen. Division, active divisions in the United States Army. And out of the 18 divisions that we have in the United States Army, only a fraction of them are actually gun toters that actually will, you know, infantry people. And when you look at the number of civil servants compared to them, like if you look at the DOD budget in the personnel, there's like a million soldiers that we have. We have like a million DOD civil servants. So for, you know, for every gun toting, you know, killers that we have, we've got like 20 civil servants out there that support them. I think that needs to change. Absolutely. That's a good point. You know, good. I mean, people don't talk about that. And you talk, you know, these, they, they Republicans call it like tip, out there. tip to tail ratio, something like that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the actual gun toting people, yeah. we have like one gun toting people, you know, to every, you know, civil servant. And that's got to change. And I mean, there are so many civil servants out there and so many hobby shops out there. This actually that's reminds me change. of something. And actually, both of you, um, in a way, made me think of this because Hans is concerned as, you know, people are going to get killed. Um, one of the criticisms of this program is the opportunity cost that it presented because of the size and amount of money it's taken up. Uh, one of the alternative programs, aside from just doing the old-fashioned way of just making specialized jets with, with pilots, is is doing it with automated or piloted remotely drones. Uh, and we've seen the rise of the drones in the Obama administration, most notably... Um, but the uh, the argument is that basically if you had spent the amount of money you spent on the F-35 on something that would be more approaching, and I can already think of a counter argument, but more approaching Skynet, <laughs> basically, um, you wouldn't need to get these pilots killed. And you could also make these airplanes, you know, turn, turn G-forces that pilots would basically just black out in and uh, just do things that you couldn't do without a pilot. Now... The, the alternative argument is that, well, that's an untested program. You know, we don't trust computers. You know, they're going to kill us. I mean, that's probably 2% chance, but, uh, you know, who knows? But it's, um, 
it's also it, it just may not be as effective we might need the intelligence uh, of the human and the pilot uh, to make those key decisions on the front lines but you know the advantages of drones are pretty obvious i mean you could churn out a vast vastly higher number of them relatively speaking uh, with lower weight uh, lower cost higher speed and they're just disposable so you know you don't really need to worry about stealth as much you know you just you swarm the enemy with these things and it's like you don't all the complexity of landing vertically. I mean, you don't even need, need to land if you think about it. Just make a missile. This is what Russia and China do, by the way. I mean, they, they don't they don't bother with these things because they're like. In one of the uh, quotes that I, I found in, in researching this was uh, the Russians' philosophy. I mean, this is sort of a you know a glib argument, obviously meant to uh, disrespect the American approach. But they basically said, you know, you you and. America designed weapons to uh, to pay you know pay Lockheed, and we designed weapons to kill people. And so if you if you just reverse you know what the sort of orientation of you know what what are you really doing here? I mean after you know, the Soviet Union fell apart, Russia really had to make some tough choices. I was talking about that earlier about people not really having the pressure on, and we're, we're just kind of complacent. We can just screw around for thirty years on developing a plane to rule everything and. By the time you know we're finished, well, well shit, you know these these uh, hypersonic missiles are just going to knock them out of the sky. What the hell did we accomplish? I mean, it just took so long. So it's like to Hans's point, like we're, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. It's it's not it's too slow. We don't have you know enough options out there in case we make mistakes, which is inevitable. Um, so. Like what? Why can't we just use drones? Like why did we have to go with this platform? You know, I guess is my question. Uh, well, I I would I I hate to like quote Pierre Spray, but if you look at the Republican Party, there's like a caucus called uh, the Depot Caucus in the United States that basically all the senators and all their you know representatives. I mean, they, you know, in all those states, you know, where they have the depot party, I mean, it's, it's a jobs program. It is. I mean, it's, and, you know, it's, it's a very expensive one at the end of the day. Um, I mean, I have, I worked with Lockheed for five years and I really, I really can't get past that. I think he's got a really good point about that. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's about keeping, you know, the last vestiges of high paying jobs in the United States, you know, where you don't have H1B visas, you know, and, you know, to get hired on with Lockheed, I mean, you, you gotta know somebody, I mean, that's really where it's come up and it's really where it's come down to. Yeah. It's like a union and, gig. No, I mean, it definitely is a union gig. I mean, I can I can go off on the union with the defense contractors for hours. But, you know, if you get there, it's it, it pays a decent wage. Uh, I work in the commercial world today. I worked at Walmart corporate offices for five years after I, you know, left Lockheed Martin. 
And I can tell you, it pays a hell of a lot more, but you have to bring a lot more to the table. And Lockheed Martin is one of those that you can just be average and you can succeed with that. And uh, I I think it's one of the last vestiges of unionization that you really have in the United States, which is very sad. Well, I'd like to ask a final question if nobody has any more thoughts. Uh, And Nick, if you're still there, you can please jump in. Um, But uh, given that we can't go back in time, you know, unless you know, you're Doctor Who or somebody, um, we don't have the choice of changing what we decided back in 1993. So we've got what we have. The only thing you can do is go forward. The question is, do you continue? And I'd like to save my answer for this uh, and let you guys go. Or Matt, you can have the final word if you want, but uh, I'll let you guys go before me. Um, would you continue with this program or would you scrap it and replace it with something else? And if you would, what would, what would that be? And you kind of have to hopefully argue why that's the right decision. So what would you guys do? Scrap it. There's, there's a lot of good tech. There's a lot of great tech that's come out of it. And I, I'm actually glad that we've spent money on things like this. I think this is, these are worthwhile endeavors to create, pieces of technology across the spectrum that do all sorts of amazing things no one's ever thought of i'm fully on board with that kind of r&d i think we should do more of it but this program uh has created a very unusable plane i think and as matt has really laid out it is not sustainable and in 10 years or less we're going to be talking about the sixth generation fighter And before this thing is actually fielded and really utilized, it's already going to be effectively obsolete from an R&D standpoint. So why not just scrap the program now, take the tech that works, integrate it into a new plane, remove a lot of the complexities of having so many different contractors do so many different pieces of the work, and build a different plane, build a drone, do something else, but scrap the program. Give it a two-year period, to kind of wind down, get everyone resituated, but let's just move on and let's develop the next generation of fighters. Let's do something totally different. But there's a lot of other areas that these pieces of tech could be utilized and we should pursue that. If we continue to stick on the program, not look at the opportunity cost, I, I think that we, we've, really, uh, we've really wasted a huge amount of very smart people's time for, for nothing. Matt, Hank, or Nick? Yeah, I think based on the wars that the United States is uh, likely to fight in the future um, and the uh, the worthlessness of the wars that the United States is likely to fight in the future, I really don't see the point on spending money on any weapon system. Any weapons? I mean, like, close the Pentagon? What do you mean? I mean, I mean, honestly, like, what do you really need the United States Air Force for? Like, what do they do <laughs> that's in the interests of the American people? I mean, I, I agree with you. That I agree. But th- this is kind of um, maybe a little bit outside the box of what I meant. I, 
Yes, this would be like if you can get all your wishes with the genie's bottle. But like, I'm not talking about like, let's pretend that you are in the White House. If you want like, like, you know, the same capability, I would just say like, you know, quadruple down on drone technology. Just like make, make the bet and stick with it. Okay, I'll add my two cents and then Matt, do you want to have a final word? Yeah, that's fine. I, um... I don't know is my honest answer. I I can sympathize with all these arguments. I'd have to really see the viability uh, from people who are actually working in the programs and are honest actors, hopefully, to explain to me what the viability of these weapon systems are. Obviously, we've learned a lot. We've, we've you know, crash tested, I mean, literally, unfortunately, but figuratively as well, a lot of these technologies. Uh, it's not like we've wasted all the money and all the time. So you could probably repurpose a lot of this stuff. My instinct would probably be to look at other alternatives, see if you could put them into better airframes. I think the uh, the multi-role, especially with the Marines after listening to this, just that just seems to be outside the scope of what the majority of the military needs. I, I would say they get their own separate plane and then do more of the F-22 stuff. Um, but I wouldn't throw away necessarily everything and just say the whole thing like the you know the maybe just go back to the f-22 something like that but the the idea of starting over is very tempting but that can offer a lot of risks as well and the instinct that i you know have about drones may be wrong uh for one but but two uh it's just an unknown like i i just don't know because we haven't really fought in combat with those types of technologies to the scale at which we have with these other older systems, which is effectively what the uh, F-35 is. It's basically a pilot in uh, airframe with buttons that launch missiles and guns. Um, and what I would say is that it's not crazy to not throw away all that. I, I think it's reasonable to say that you should have a program like that out there and maybe also invest in drones and then see what actually is more effective in combat because picking one over the other without having data on the drones especially I think is very risky it, itself. But as for the the Lockheed program, um, it might need to be broken up. You'd really have to have a good specialist who knows what the fuck he's doing. like Somebody like Alan Mulally who was at Boeing who turned Ford around. There's very few people in this country who could pull it off. And if you didn't have that person, I would say don't throw it away because if you put the wrong person in there, you're just going to get an even bigger disaster because we're still trying to do the same technologies in a lot of ways. Uh, we've made mistakes, but I don't see how the same mistakes wouldn't be repeated necessarily if you just put new new buildings around the, you know, the different pieces. So you'd have to have, to summarize, you need more data. So start experimenting with other things, listen to the experts, and really be careful about picking your alternatives because you might screw that up too. But Matt, what are your now, thoughts? Well, oh, before, Nick, I, Nick, I'd yeah. like our guest to have the last word, but I'm throwing my two cents. I haven't had much to say. I don't like to speak about things I don't know anything about, and you guys have done a great job talking about the subject. I do not have the technical expertise to discuss it, but from my perspective, it seems that most of this that you've been discussing is largely, as Matt has said, a, a 
various forms of boondoggle to the defense contractors as well as to the GOP constituency that makes up the workforce at these plants. And as far as I can tell, you don't need any kind of advanced weapons technology to slaughter Afghani wedding parties. Very well said. Uh, where to start with that? Uh, for one thing, uh, you know, with the F-35 program, kind of what I was talking about with the, uh, my experience out there in Yuma, all the planes that came out there, you know, right from the, fl- the plant, had to go through depot operations. And basically, I think we have 200-something F-35s out there in the world today. And it's been brought to our attention that the majority of them are not going to be combat survivable or combat capable. They're just going to be training aircraft at this point. And, you know, basically we've spent billions of dollars on 200 planes that are just going to be nothing but just training aircraft. And that to me, that's just a huge just loss. Now, can you to the just to jump in? I've heard from a pilot. Okay. I'll just say that, that it actually is in their simulations or probably in flight simulations with like dummy weapon systems, at least uh, it's pretty combat effective aircraft against other weapon systems. Now I don't know the details of that, exactly how that, that went down. Maybe it's rigged. I don't know, but can you explain why the pilot of the F 35 would say he actually likes the weapon system? If you think it's just for training. Well, I mean, the pilot can say whatever he wants and, you know, but you have to look at the people that have to maintain it and, you know, that have to maintain the supply chain out of it. And I don't care what the pilot says. I mean, it might be a great plane, you know, according to him, but, you know, what good does it have to have a plane like that? You can only fly. You know, if you only have 50% of the planes capable, you know, available to do a mission, I mean, it makes, I mean, it's, it's totally unsustainable. Yeah. That's a I don't point. care what the, I don't care what the pilot says. You have to look at the maintainers and the supply chain people. Well, I would say look at both. I mean, you, you can't just pick one. I mean, there are, I, I would say to my perspective, I, I don't work for Lockheed or in the military, but I, th- I think we run the risk of having, you know, one sort of point of view. I think maybe what you're getting at is that it's not just what the pilot says or Pierre Spray says or the guy who works, you know, for stock options at Lockheed. It's it's you need to combine and weight them as a whole. But, you know, so please continue. Yeah. yeah, I mean, sure, I, I understand that. And it's, you know, for the planes that are actually available to fly, I'm sure it's a great plane. You know, I mean, I know it's a great plane. Um, as for, you know, keeping the plane, you know, available, you know, for, you know, future research or, you know, to, you know, take what knowledge, what, you know, that was gleamed off of it. I would say most of that is software. I mean, if you look at the XB-70 plane or the SR-71, I mean, we look at, like an aeronautical design 
type of a deal. They didn't have computers back then. I mean, that, that was a lot more to, you know, you know, keep and sustain for future, you know, different aeronautics. You know, if the F-35, it's, I mean, there's nothing really outstandingly, you know, great about that plane other than, you know, the, uh, you know, the lift fan of it. Other than that, I mean, there's nothing really great about the plane. I mean, it's mostly software. And that's, that's the biggest, you know, downfall of this program has been the software. And, um, you know, I would say to like the Republican Party, I mean, they're always talking about, you know, we got to keep, you know, government spending under control and, you know, but yet at the same time, I mean, a huge amount of our budget is devoted to, you know, these programs and these depots and maintaining the military. I just wish that they would just be honest and just say like, look, this is a jobs program, you know, and that's not what they do right now, you know? I mean, if they went full like Ron Paul or whatever, they would just say, look, um, we need to get rid of a lot of these civil servants and we just need to maintain a, uh, a very nimble military, just like, you know, the Russians, and the Chinese do. If you look at the amount of military spending that we do, it's just insane. Like it's. I, I think we have a bigger military budget than the rest of the world combined. Yeah. And I'm not really sure if that military that we have is completely, you know, potent against these other people. Uh, I'd probably put my dollar on the Russians. I, I think they can make that dollar go a lot further. And you're, you're talking about countries that do not have the GDP that we have. They have to make that dollar go every bit as far as they possibly can. And like, I, I'm going to end on this. I will just say that we have more civil servants than we do, you know, trigger pullers in this country. And enough said with that. You know, it's just not an efficient military. It's a jobs program at the end of the day. 